Example for basketball, right, is I spend maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes a week max in my actual fantasy basketball app. But I spend probably hours chatting with my friends about the players on my team, thinking about who to pick up, following the news. That's the element of the game outside of the game that really matters. And so when we think about building VBA game as a product, the actual UI itself, sure, you can spend time transacting on a marketplace or watching the game or setting your lineup. But what we really want is like we really want people to participate in the ecosystem and things around it, whether that's chatting the community, creating backstories and narratives for the players, etc. That's, I think, where the real value of this product comes up. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, this is Will Chang, and as always, I have my co-hosts, Lee Chang and Andrew Su with me. Good to be here. Hello from Taiwan. Hello. So great to be here. Today, we have Charles Du with us. Charles is the CEO and co-founder of Fastbreak Labs. Fastbreak Labs is building VBA, a Web3 game that allows basketball fans to strategize as general managers of their own virtual basketball teams. They just raised $6 million with Patron and Pantera Capital leading the round. Some of their angel investors include Brooklyn Nets owner Joe Tsai's family office, Sacramento Kings co-owner Anil Ranadive, and Mark Merrill, the co-founder of Riot Games. Prior to Fastbreak Labs, Charles was a product manager at Facebook. Welcome, Charles. Hey, it's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. So the first thing that I wanted to ask you is your relationship with basketball. What was your first NBA game? Yeah, so my first NBA game, I'm from Minnesota, by the way. So my first NBA game was a Yao Ming KG game in 2005 when the Rockets came to town. And we had like the worst nosebleed seats. But I had never played basketball before in my life, had never watched a basketball game. And my dad was like, Charles, Yao Ming is Chinese. He's like an inspiration to us all. And like, we did go to this game. And that was the first basketball game that I went to. And I think ever since then, I've just been in love with the sport. And then you played basketball throughout your life as well, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, I played through middle school, high school, and then helped co-found and played on like our college club team. So not like the varsity team, but we would still go and compete against other schools and other colleges when I was there. One of the things I'm really excited to ask you about, because I've been listening to a bunch of your interviews, there's like just a lot of common themes. You described yourself as a Shane Battier, and you talk about Yao Ming. And that's actually how I got really involved in basketball. Most of my friends in college and in high school, they grew up playing basketball or watching basketball for the game, for the players. But I actually got introduced through basketball through Daryl Morey. So mm. at the time, I got really into Rockets because Yao Ming, of course, and then Yao Ming got injured and Tracy McGrady got injured. So they had two crazy contracts that they couldn't get rid of. And then they had this little bit amount of money that Daryl Morey had to basically figure out how to get enough good players to win games, right? And so he started introducing sports analytics into it. And that's how I actually personally got into it, is that fascination of being a GM. It sounds like you're also a Moriball guy. Maybe perhaps not so much Moriball, but I think overall, my experience with sports in general was I've been decent at sports themselves, but never great at sports video games. When I was a kid, what we would do is my buddies and I would sit in my friend's basement. Four of us would crowd around like the PlayStation. And what we would do is we would just simulate seasons and games. Like we would actually never really play like one-on-one against each other. But what we would do is like we would try to out-strategize each other on trying to find the best players. And something that's like really important to me was diversity in the sport. And so whenever I saw like a Chinese guy come up ever, like I'd always try to draft him on my team or try to allocate a free agent spot because 
that would just get us so excited. And I remember one year actually that really stands out to me. And this sort of serves as to why we care a lot about people trying to create backstories and narratives around their players is I remember one season, there was this one player who I had on my team, this like random seven, three guy from like Eastern Europe. And we would sit around the lunch table in high school, basically just talking about him as if he was a real athlete. And so that inspires us a lot here saying like, oh, like what if we were to empower a lot of people to go create their own stories? Because we sort of lived it ourselves when we were growing up as kids. Charles, is it more your game that you do model your game after Shane Battier? Is that like the way you play or is that you admire his game? When I was in college, basically, yeah. like I would just play defense and sit on the perimeter. Okay, that's just like Will. Like that's like, yeah. yeah. yeah that's what like to so do. you're like the yeah. guy that you want on your team, but it's so fucking annoying to play against. <laughs> Well, what's weird is like, I'll ask the other question in a minute, but what's weird about this is I hit my growth spurt really early, right? So I was six feet tall in eighth grade, which means it did like I was posting up kids and just getting 20 points and 10 boards a game in like AU, right? Yeah. And then I quit growing. I had to transition (laughs) from being like a center to like a guard. And so in college, basically, I just like didn't really have that many skills, although the, I could play defense on big guys. That was mm. my thing was, oh, I had played big against big guys growing up. I was no longer big, but I was like decently strong and knew how to position myself. Yeah. And so that was the role that I had at practice was I would play defense on these guys who were like 6'5 and 6'6 six, six, as somebody who's still six feet tall. Mm. That was the role that I played on the team. It would be helpful for us to have like a small ball lineup effectively. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up partially in Taiwan. That's when I started playing basketball. I was 5'10" in sixth grade. And so I was playing center, big man, you know, just like stay inside. And I moved to the States for high school. And then all of a sudden I was like a point guard, right? But I couldn't dribble. I never developed handles. <laughs> so I don't play there for what it's worth. Yeah, and I still, I still can't dribble with crap. So that's the bane of my basketball. Yeah. 5'10 in Taiwan, though you're a giant. I was, yeah. <laughs> now I'm not, no longer. I'm just yeah. like a normal perimeter guy now. So let's talk a little bit about VBA and just give the audience an understanding of what VBA games Can you explain the concept? VBA, to describe what it is, is a basketball manager game where you get to be the owner of your own team and your team competes in games, tournaments, and leagues for rewards. What Web3 really enables is it enables people to be the true owner of these assets. So we want people to take the IP, basically, using the game as a framework for creating narratives around, but really feel empowered to create storylines behind each of the individual players on their teams and the teams themselves. A good example that sort of inspires this really is, I don't know if you guys know who Little Michaela is, but Little Michaela is this Instagram personality. She's like not a real person, but she's like a fictional character. She's effectively an avatar, right? And she has millions of followers. But it's something that these people created just on their own. And if you just like look at behavior in China and other markets, this is very much becoming a real thing, right? Where the, these avatars that are becoming people, you see it with NFTs where like CryptoPunk 6,000 Twitter account with like 30,000 people following it. What gets us really excited, and this is why the fictional player angle makes sense for us, is can you imagine a world in which people create these fictional characters based off of the gameplay that we have? And we think that has opens up a lot of doors in terms of what does it mean to create like a community-driven league and ecosystem? So let's actually start from the beginning. How did you start getting inspired by this idea and building out VBA games? Yeah. So the real genesis story of this is, I guess as Andrew knows, is I was previously exploring a handful of other ideas through the beginning of 2021. I was exploring healthcare ideas, consumer tech, B2B SaaS. And through the majority of the year, I think was just a founder market fit problem where I was just working on the wrong problem given what I was passionate about. And the last feedback that I got from my old co-founder actually was is, Charles, you keep pursuing these ideas that you think have huge market sizes, but aren't things that you aren't genuinely passionate about. And I was like, okay, well, the two things that I love more than anything in the world are like basketball and video games. And 
obviously basketball and video games are massive market sizes, right? Because it's just two huge consumer markets. And I just never thought that this was a business thing that I could actually start. And so when we split up and he had mentioned that to me, I started thinking like really deeply about like, okay, what would it look like for me to start a business in this space? And while I was getting dumplings with an old college friend, we were just talking about this horse racing game called Zed Run, where people basically race these digital NFT horses on the internet for ETH prize pools. And I was like, okay, if people are willing to spend thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on this fictional horse racing universe, right? What does this look like for other sports and other ecosystems? And at this time, I was reflecting on my, the advice that I got from my old co-founder on like, hey, you should work something you're passionate about. I was like, okay, well, this works for horses. I love basketball. I love video games. What does this look like in a Web3 native way? So that's how VBA as a product got started. We talked about Zed Run a little bit in recent or previous episodes. And Shaolin, Andrew's wife, talked about it and mm-hmm. how they basically kind of mimicked all different facets of horse racing, right? Whether it's the actual attributes in the racing or it's like the economics in breeding. And basically, they're mimicking the game and it makes it super fun because all of these mechanics have already been figured out in the real world and they're just really just recreating it in this fictional world. Example mechanics is like horses that have done well at racing, studs that have done well at racing, breeding horses, the actual exact mechanics of folks paying for a good stud, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They've mimicked it, right? Mm-hmm. And then the part that they simulate is actually the races. But from an ownership perspective, they have exactly replicated known mechanics. Yeah. So what's interesting about BBA game is that you can see the same mechanics coming from fantasy basketball, right? Yep. Because you're an owner of a basketball team. But the problem with a fantasy basketball team is that you own the same players as everyone else. And at the end of the season, they're no longer your players. And you do win this prize pool, but it's not as fun, I feel like, as it could be potentially as a, like a Web3 game. Real quick, there are keeper leagues in fantasy basketball. Yeah, to Andrew's point, I think something that there's the base game of Zed Run, which is like, I'm either running the breeding, there's two core loops, right? There's the breeding loop where it's like, you know, I'm focused on breeding as best horses as I possibly can to make money. And then there's the racing loop, which is like, I want to identify the best horses to win races. But there's also something that's what I think is probably more interesting, right? Which is the game around the game, which is how people think of themselves as Zed personas and think about the ecosystem while they're not actually in the UI itself. Example for basketball, right, is I spend maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes a week max in my actual fantasy basketball app. But I spent probably hours chatting with my friends about the players on my team, thinking about who to pick up, following the news. That's the element of the game outside of the game that really matters. And so when we think about building VBA game as a product, the actual UI itself, sure, you can spend time transacting on a marketplace or watching the game or setting your lineup. But what we really want is we really want people to participate in the ecosystem and things around it, whether that's chatting the community, creating backstories and narratives for the players, etc. That's, I think, where the real value of this product comes up. Yeah, I was going to ask if you played fantasy basketball, but it does sound like you do. Oh, yeah. The early team members are actually from the same fantasy basketball league as me. We've been in the same league for like almost seven or eight years at this point. (laughs) All right. It's funny because, yeah, for most of my friends, I actually stopped. I used to play with from way back. So we play on Yahoo. It's been like 15, I don't know, maybe almost 20 years now, which is kind of insane. So what are some things that you've learned from fantasy basketball that you're looking to bring in? And like you said, there are certain limitations, perhaps or things that you guys want to build in. Can you get more into the specifics of how you're trying to add those elements into VBA games? Yeah, we call the game itself fantasy, fantasy basketball. That's the best moniker that we've had to describe it. And so the reason why we use fantasy twice is the first fantasy alludes to the fact that this is 
not real players, right? In the sense that normal fantasy basketball is you have a team full of real players on the team. So the first fantasy refers to that. And the feeling that we want to get across there is it's like the NBA 2K experience, right? And that you have a team of players and you're simulating these leagues and you have full control over this like fantasy team in that sense. The second fantasy applies to like fantasy sports and that we're trying to take elements from fantasy sports, like the UI and things that they've done well, where it's suited for like an adult audience on the go. You don't spend a lot of time in it that we want to replicate in the product. So we're trying to merge this concept of owning a fantasy team in the 2K sense with a fantasy type UI and style that people can use and spend not as much time as they would have to in it. So for the audience that aren't familiar with 2K and aren't familiar with fantasy, maybe we could just give a really quick background on what 2K is and the mechanics of 2K and then also what fantasy is and mechanics of fantasy. Yeah, so 2K is like a console-based basketball game where there's multiple different game modes. The core focus, though, really, is a live action mode where you actually control the players on the team and you play against somebody else. The manager mode that I'm referring to here is a mode in which like, you control one of 30 teams in the league and you have customization abilities in terms of creating new teams, creating players, and then basically simulating, I think, up to like 100 seasons almost well into the future where like this league evolves and changes. Fantasy basketball, I guess, is a scoring-based system where like, you have players on real NBA teams and based on how they perform, you earn points for and based on how many points you have compared to others, you either win or lose. And there's also multiple formats there, whether like you're in like a long league, a dynasty league, or like a daily fantasy type of league. So for fantasy, the fun part of it is really playing against your friends, right? Yeah, that's what I would say. It's like playing against your friends and winning for like bragging rights mostly. But if I was a participant that I owned a team in the BBA, how would I actually play the game? What would that gameplay look like? Yeah, the core loop in season zero, which is our playable alpha, is one thing, right? Which is I have my team of players. I enter a weekly contest. As part of that weekly contest, I'm in a round robin group with a handful of other teams. Those games are simulated basically one game a day, so six games basically. And then at the end of the week, if I win and do well, I move up in ranking and I compete for higher and higher prizes. And then if I do worse, I move down in rank and I play against worse teams, but I can still have a chance of earning prizes. And so the strategic element of this is identifying the right players to put on my team against my opponents to try to make sure that I have the right lineup to win those contests. Is the team that you're creating, are you drafting these players? Are you finding them on the waiver wire? Like, how are you assembling your team? The initial team that folks will get will be from minting our season zero, just like player pack. And so the way that mechanism is constructed is that if people mint at the end of March, they'll receive a player pack, in which case they'll be eligible to receive one player a week from that pack until the game comes out. So basically, from March 30th on for seven weeks up until mid-May, you'll receive one player a week. And then once you have seven players, your lineup will consist of five of those seven, right? So you have seven, choose five options to basically create a lineup, right? If you don't mint, and if you want to enhance your team of players, you can always pick up players off of the marketplace, like a Magic Eden, for example. Oh, so you're actually buying players. Yeah, you are buying and selling Real players. Like player assets, yes. Oh, interesting. So then with so the seven players, do you have to match them up to the position they play? In the early days, actually, no. We want people to experiment to figure out what the best setup is, right? So every single player will have a preferred position, whether it's point guard, shooting guard, you know, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, combinations, and basically combinations of the five positions. But just like in real life basketball, those positions aren't really that meaningful, right? Like if you've actually coached a team before, like sure, you can call somebody a center, but it's not really that meaningful of a thing. And so we'll let people put players in whatever position they want. After a player is minted, one, do you assume everybody, all the players will be on Magic Eden? 
And then two, just taking Magic Eden as the sample marketplace. Yeah, that's a great question. I think marketplaces are interesting because you can list your assets on almost any number of marketplaces, right? So like it could be on Magic Eden, it could be on Fractal, it could be on Hyperspace, it could be on Solana Art. So I guess it wouldn't be concentrated on one marketplace, which I think is fine. I think Magic Eden has like 80 to 90% of the volume though. So it will feel like there's a lot of concentration in one place. And then in terms of feature richness, I don't think that at the initial stage they will, but that, even that's something that we have to build towards, whether we do it together or separately, that's to be determined. But there's a richness of stats and data that we'll have that they won't have immediately that are important for decision making. What you see in certain ecosystems actually is, is you see the core team basically open up an API for other builders to build on top of. And then all of a sudden you, they've built other tools. So the moment like Zebron or like some of these other games clicked for me was when I saw other builders building tools on top of that ecosystem, I was like, oh, okay, like once you have like a platform that people are building on top of, you have some semblance of like strong product market fit here, right? And so that's sort of something that we're interested in, right? Is finding developers who are looking to take the data that we create to create tools for our community. That's a really cool thing about composability in Web3. Yeah. In 2K, you have a group of players and by basically having the team win, that's how you win, right? Whereas in fantasy, what you're doing is you're basically having the players give you stats, whether it's rebounds or points. And then based on the comparison between the other GM that you're playing against is your rebound higher versus their rebound higher. That's how you want to point and over basically an aggregation of those different yep. stats is whether you want to lose, right? Yeah. In VBA, how do you win? Yeah. So it's going to be more like the 2K model, right? We've built a simulator where we output play by play. So basically we've given every single player in the game a set of attributes. So they have preferred position. They have play styles. Imagine like pass first point guard, three and D wing, paint beast type of at like play styles where like they're good at certain things and bad at other things. And then as a result of that, they also have attributes associated with them, right? And so what we've built so far is we have a simulator where we take into account all the attributes of the 10 players on the court, basically. And on a play-by-play basis, we're able to generate like, you know, player X got a rebound, player X, player Y blocked a shot, et cetera, et cetera. And then basically the sum of all those plays determines like the output of a given game. So that's interesting to me, but I'm curious, have you guys thought about the potential for controversy or frustration from your players? Because there's got to be a certain element of randomness, right? Like if I'm playing 2K, or let's say fantasy, it's just straight by the stats. So I lose by one rebound. Now I feel unlucky, but that's what happened. If I'm playing 2K four quarters, usually the better player wins, right? In VBA games, it's like, hey, I feel like I have a strong team. The sim runs and just spits out that I lost, right? Have you guys thought about how to deal with that potential issue if it comes up? Yeah, I think there's like the micro, which is on a one game basis. Maybe I play Will and I lose and, you know, I think my team is better. You're going to be upset as a user, but I think if you can have a statistically proven in the long run, it feels fair. That's where you want to move to, right? Team USA loses to random international teams all the time, right? But and that's Team USA. And so you know that there's precedent in reality where even the best team loses at certain times. What does the simulation look like? Is it just snap and it's done and then these are all the stats and the winning? Or is it like you're basically actually watching a simulation play out as you're playing against them? Yeah, so something that I'm really excited about as like a big fantasy nut is I spend a ton of time just on the couch or walking and I like pull out my phone and I'll look at the box score and I'll like watch a couple of plays just to see where things are. And then if it's close, I actually might stay in and watch the box score a little bit longer. And if it's not, I'll put my phone away, right? And so a behavior that we want to see almost is these simulations will play as like live games effectively, right? And they'll be happening before the user's eyes. And 
they can tune it at certain times if they want and actually watch it as if there was an actual game on before their very eyes. So at the end of the game, what do you give the GMs to analyze how well it went, right? Are you giving stats of each player? What kind of things are you giving them at the end where they can analyze, okay, did I play the right players, things like that? Yeah, so in the MVP itself, users will for sure get the full box score basically after every game. And then some sort of statistical averaging over the course of certain number of games points, rebounds, assists, et cetera. Longer term, we're really interested in figuring out the right way to reveal attributes and statistics to users so that they even have more levers to pull when it comes to analyzing like who's the right composition for me. Something that we're really big on here is, I don't know if I've described this yet, but we have five rarities of players, right? From underdog up to legendary. And we were very deliberate about the name underdog in that people who go undrafted in the NBA become stars sometime, right? And so we don't want the assumption to be, okay, I have the lowest ranked player or the common player and he's not worth anything. And so we want to find mechanisms where people who spend the time to figure out who is good and who isn't good can actually find these hidden gems in the rough that can be valuable for somebody's team because of the way that we've set it up. So while people who are legendary might have a higher chance of being great, people who are common can also be great. And at the same side, people who are legendary can also be busts because in reality, like when you draft first overall, you get the Kwame Browns and the Anthony Bennett's of the world who just aren't in the league anymore. So <laughs> the sneak peek is there analytical pattern where a specific dog would actually be more likely to succeed that if a GM could figure it out that they should actually draft that person. An analytical pattern, I guess it will depend on how good your data analysis skills are or what tools you have to figure that out. Yeah, to be determined <laughs> on how well people do there. It's a tangent related, I guess, given what you just talked about. So first, my question was going to be, do you allow a GM to call plays? But saying that out loud, that didn't make sense. Because GMs don't oh, we can talk about that. We can talk about that. <laughs> I'd be interested in that, right? Because you've got the simulation. That's one potential form of engagement. But then another would be, alternatively, do you allow a GM to actually draft or hire coaches, right? Because those are two different facets that I think could be quite engaging that we haven't really seen before, right? So either to draft coaches or hire them and or to call plays or act as the coach. But yeah. have you all thought about that or... How we have about it. This is one of those things where our approach with it is we know that there are a couple of options here and it's weight on the community and sort of the direction that we go towards to just make a decision here. So for example, there's one universe in which we say, okay, like people are really hungry for more in-game play calling, more in-game like substitutions, et cetera. And then all of a sudden now you have a new user type, right? Because I would argue that the person who's the coach user type could be a different user than somebody who's the GM user type, right? And so now all of a sudden we've opened up a new role where GMs of teams can go out and hire a coach to actually go manage their team, right? The other world is we could just sell AI coaches, right? And now all of a sudden, now you have these player NFTs and now you have these coach NFTs. And now these coach NFTs also have attributes on how good they are at coaching, right? And now you're combining the coach abilities with the team abilities and seeing what happens. It could be a world in which there's both. I'm pretty bullish on a future where there's multiple game modes for different user types, in which case these possibilities could all exist in that setting. I'm not sure if you already answered this earlier, Charles, but in terms of the player attributes, is there like an evolution or like a mechanism for them to gain stats to like improve? And how does that design right now? Yeah, so for season zero, we're not doing progression, regression, but we've already assigned players like a years of experience number, basically. Like a clock, this player is going to retire at some point, mm. right? And... The reason why we did that is we were looking at existing games like Zed, for example, where the horses don't age out, they don't retire. And so what ends up happening is you have these monster horses that never leave the system and people are just like stuck. You can't ever beat them. 
right? It's, it's like if Jordan were to never retire in the NBA, what would have happened in the NBA? Like sort of like what's happening with Tom Brady in football right now, right? It's this guy <laughs> never retire, <laughs> you know? We've basically set it up in that players will retire over a certain period of time. But what will happen is, is that all players will progress and regress. So I don't know if you guys are big 538 fans, but 538 has this thing called Carmelo, right? Where they sort of model their careers. And they have all these different graphs, right? On like, hey, like the common NBA player, there's these different career trajectories that you can sort of model player performance off of. And we're trying to evaluate different options like that, where it's you can sort of tie each player to a progression regression curve. So that there could be a player like Giannis, who like, you know, in his first season is okay. By season five, he's incredible. He's the best player in the league, right? And then there are other players who enter the league, like Luca, and they're just amazing. And they just stay amazing for forever. And there's people who enter, have a really great first season, like Tyreek Evans, and then basically taper off really quickly as well. And so we're trying to make sure that we have players like that as well. And so the fun of it almost is like seeing who you have and playing that season by season to figure out who, what you have. That makes sense. So this is a nerdy question. Did you actually try and get NBA data on progression and regression curves to actually like simulate is like, bell curve, for lack of better words, on percentage of players that accelerate, decelerate, et cetera, at different rates, and then apply it? Not NBA data like that, statistically sound, I would say, but I would also say that we haven't fully built out this feature yet because this is something that we would do in future seasons. What I will call out, though, is we're trying to avoid early on is like too many comps to the NBA itself. And so a non-goal that we have is like we don't want the simulator to feel an exact one-for-one with the NBA, and we don't want all the things to feel like a one-for-one with the NBA. Example of this is like people have been calling for like a four point line in the NBA for the longest time. Not saying that we're going to have a four point line, but it's one of those things where it's now like, okay, well, with community governance, is there a world in which like if enough of the fans want there to be one, we execute that relatively easily with a couple lines of code. Again, not promising anything here because I don't want to have something like this in the future, but it's a cool experiment, right? In the sense of by having it be Web3 native, there's now this ownership stake where the people who are playing it have a very active role determining the rule set. So the way that I've described it that people just seem like they're excited about is sort of a mix of NBA 2K, my GM with fantasy sports. And if I say that there's enough fans of those two things that people are like, oh, I could imagine what that looks like, but nobody really knows what that looks like. And so I think because it's a brand new game format and game mode, the challenge has been like, okay, what's the most concise way for us to get the point across as to what this is? I think the key here has been just keeping the game loop simple. And so we've just been trying to say, okay, MVP is you have your team, you enter this weekly contest, you play games, you change your lineup, and you repeat that loop. And it sounds like it's simple, but in reality, that's at the essence of any game, that's what it is, right? Is you have to perfect that core loop to a point where like people love that for that experience, and then you start building the ecosystem around it. And so that's our focus is let's just get people to understand this core loop and enjoy it, and then everything else can come afterwards. Yeah, and I think it's a good point you made too. Obviously, there's so many different ideas and potential mechanisms that you can implement, right? But at the same time, even because there are the precedents of fantasy and people that play 2K, there's going to be a large contingent of people that are like, oh, so how is this similar or how is this different? But they also will expect certain things. And then if you're trying to like appease everyone, then you're no longer a unique product, right? So I think, yeah, definitely you and your team should come up with your own version of exactly what vision is. And then you can maybe experiment different seasons. But if you're trying to like throw everything in there, like it could be just a bit too much. Yeah, we have this principle that we had. Don't ask me for all the principles off the top of my head because I don't have them memorized. But I, this one stands out to me, right? Is that one of our principles is that we want to create something new. We don't ever want to draw the comp of like, oh, this is NBA 2K in the blockchain or this is fantasy sports yeah. in the blockchain. That doesn't make sense, right? There's already a really great Web2 product yeah. that works for them. Right, right. And so what we want to build here is we should take elements 
that work within the ecosystem that we're creating into our product, but not necessarily do a direct copy. You talk about non-cops with the NBA, and one of the things that I really like about what you guys are doing is the diversity angle. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the inspiration here comes from two pieces. One is, I think, the experience that I shared earlier, where it's whenever I was excited, I, whenever I saw an Asian player, I would always get really excited. Like, I have an instant connection to like Yao Ming or Jeremy Lin because I can identify with their experience to a level where it's like, there's so few of them, and just like, they feel like hero figures to me. And so that's why we have the racial angle in it, is like, because we know that people can feel this affinity to all these different backgrounds. The second angle is gender non-binary as well, in that people have talked about this for a while, right? It's like, why, you know, why don't men and women play at the same levels? Why don't they have the same pay in sports? It's a big issue, right? WB players are paid way less than NBA players. Well, the metaverse is one of those spaces where you can do things that don't happen in reality here and make an experience that feels as meaningful. And so that's something that's really important to us is making sure that people have people that they can look up to and identify with in our product. So I wanted to understand that core a little bit more. Just a couple of mechanics, right? You have seven players. All seven players, are they NFTs? Yes, all seven players at first will be NFTs. And can you have more than seven players? Yes, you can have more than seven players, but you can only have five playing at one time. You can conceptually like just collect players then, right? In, in your wallet. Like you could have 50 players, but you can only play yeah. five of them. Got it. Yeah, five per wallet. But <laughs> the obvious thing is that you can just create like 10 wallets and now you have 10 teams. Right. <laughs> I'm excited about the game. So what were the technical challenges that you work through that you found difficult to figure out as you were designing the game? Or are there things you just had to figure out, right? In terms of either tokenomics or player minting or simulations, given Web3, right? What was Web2? All kinds of just things. I'm just curious, from a product manager perspective, what were the facets that you had to figure out outside of the core loop, the gameplay, right? You kind of had to find engineers for or that you kind of had to figure out how to build. Yeah, I think the couple of more interesting things that we've worked through are two things, right? One is, how does the fundamental simulator work? And then two is, what do we put on-chain versus what we put off-chain, right? So the first one I won't talk about too much because I don't want to reveal how the simulator works, but we spent a lot of time evaluating different models by which like, we can sort of use player attributes to determine outcomes. And we feel like we're in a good place there, but I'll just say that building a simulator is a lot more complicated than I'd initially thought, probably foolishly, and that a simulator on this complexity is actually quite difficult to build. In terms of player data that goes on-chain versus off-chain, is, this is an interesting learning that we had, is that games like FIFA and 2K, there's attributes that they reveal to users, but there's even more attributes that they hide from users, right? And so for us, not super obvious to you, right? And that like, you know, I have these 52 attributes for my NBA 2K player, but there's even more hidden behind the scenes. And so for us trying to sort of draw the line, like what's above the fold and what's below the fold, both on-chain and revealed versus off-chain and revealed, et cetera, has been quite challenging. And the principle that we've gone by here is things that like we're confident and won't be changing too much, that stuff's going on-chain. Everything else that like we're still experimenting with is off-chain and we'll slowly move it on-chain as necessary for our users. I just wanted to explain to the audience and to you guys why I'm so excited about this game. And the reason why is because I'm just a, huge sports analytics geek, right? Starting from like Billy Bean and Moneyball and how Billy Bean brought in data analytics into baseball before data analytics, people were just looking at what they saw was the truth, right? How good they looked instead of actually looking at the stats they put up. Baseball was a very individual sport, so that was easy. Basketball is harder because you got five guys on the same team, so they didn't think that they could actually bring data analytics into that sport. Daryl Morey, MIT Sloan brought it in and started showing the rest of the basketball that you could actually look at data 
and determine what the truth was, right? Versus just having a idea of what the truth is. And what's really interesting to me about the game is that there's this algorithm that is the truth. And then people are just guessing what potentially could lead to a win. But really there's like a reality that's the simulation engine that's driving it. And people have to basically theorize how to get close to that simulation in order to actually win the game. Yeah. And something that I'll add on top of that too is don't treat the simulation as something that's fixed as well, right? In order to keep a game interesting, you have to have a never-ending updating meta, right? League of Legends, for example, like they always have these patches, right? Where they're always balancing and changing players and the gameplay. And as a result of that, the strategy that you have to deploy is different. And I would actually argue the same thing. There's a meta in the NBA, right? In the 90s, big men were really dominant. And now you don't see like very many big men at all. It's all like wing players who play like 3 and D and like shoot a lot of three-pointers, right? And the league has changed. And I think something that's fun about this with the simulation is how do we create a simulation engine that like we can patch and sort of create meta changes almost from season to season for our users? Yeah, I mean, if you think about in real life, it is really funny because once the game changes, the meta changes, the players also change too. Because well, Steph Curry has inspired a whole new generation of Steph Currys, right? Yeah. And so basically the actual players change based on the meta of the game too. Yes, exactly. Exactly, exactly. And that's something that like, we're very looking forward to is once you start getting into this evolving state into future seasons is when I'm, I think there's going to be like a lot of fun opportunity to create things. Yeah, so that actually inspires me about seeing if you've thought about actually having like reporters, right? So meaning like <laughs> what three, it's bigger and bigger, it's pushing on having entire communities, right? And so if you're building a new app, you need developers, you need people helping re- regulation, et cetera, et cetera, right? But from your interest, your customer base, people that are excited, there's an opportunity then that actually there are folks analyzing and just sharing and then rewarded for, hey, this is the era of this person. This is actually what's successful, right? Have you kind of thought about that? I'm very, very bullish on journalism and reporters for this. If there's a way in which like we can sort of incentivize reporting, I'm all for it. Because I think that's something that we really need to crack with this is what makes the sport special, not necessarily is the people playing the games, but it's the fans around the ecosystem. For us to be able to crack the fan problem is like something that I'm like very eager to figure out a solution for. A way that I'm sort of thinking about it now is League of Legends is a great example, right? And that there's an upper echelon of top teams that people really are like fans of. TSM, for example, right? Then there's people who are very, very competitive, but not quite there, but trying to get in that position. And then there's just all the casual players outside of that ecosystem. And it's like, how can we recreate an ecosystem like that where there is like an upper echelon, where there are storylines, there's drama, there's journalism around that. There's an upper tier of people who are trying to compete to make it into that level. And then there's the casuals who are playing the game because it's fun, you know, maybe it's with their friends or maybe it's with other communities that they're a part of, but they're really just there because they want to be fans of something else. 1% at the top tier, 9% in the really competitive tier, and then the majority of people are spectators and fans. There's one mental model that I'm just thinking through at this moment. One of the things that I really miss about my college days was the, the existence of all these GM blogs and mm-hmm. how every team had these bloggers that would just basically analyze each decision that the GM made, whether it's trades <laughs> or picks or... And I think that's kind of gone away now. It's not as prevalent now because I think they got all got bought out by conglomerates. But I think it's really interesting because that's actually what these potential journalists would have to be commenting on, right? The actual GM moves and not the actual playing of the basketball game. Yeah. In local sports journalism has largely died out. <laughs> but there's two angles to this, right? One is just I'm analyzing real life events as if Andrew traded this player or Andrew's star point guard underperformed in a game and they lost in the playoffs, right? 
Then there's the other angle, which is who's the person out there who writes fan fiction? The reason why Andrew dropped his point guard is because he had beef with the center and he wasn't happy with it. And now all of a sudden you've created this whole storyline about that. Because sometimes you laugh about this stuff, right? But there are people who really, really love this. Like, as I said, I talked with my friends at like the lunch table at school about what would happen with this like, Bosnian guy in the league, right? And there's a really interesting comp for this, right? There's this game called Blaseball. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, basically, where it's this horror fantasy baseball simulator. And they use the simulator sort of as the backbone for storylines where every single week they would simulate an entire season of baseball. And they'd have one game every single hour, right? But what people did with that was is they created a whole fan fiction universe almost talking about the storylines of all players. And then what the game did was that they started incorporating some of these stories into the lore and the history of the league itself, right? And I think for us, that's something that like we're definitely interested in trying to figure out. Is that a model that works for the product that we're building as well? No, I just think that's really cool. And then also, I'm just amused by thinking about how much... I don't play fantasy anymore, but the old fantasy teams would enjoy a commentator making fun of everyone for all their choices. Because that was our old thing that we would do at the end of the fantasy sports, the champion would write out and make fun of everyone's choices throughout the entire league and just talk shit basically me like they thought that they had it figured out and then I killed them. Right. But to have someone actually reporting on it and being like, this idiot is doing this, right, would be actually kind of amazing. I was in a fantasy football league once and there was a guy who would summarize every single week and just add stories to it. And I think that added a ton of fun to the actual league itself because hundred percent, yeah. not be making moves anymore, but it's like somebody telling a story around the moves. I just added a whole other dimension to it. I think the era that we're in with Web three is like the tabletop Dungeon Dragons or the early Web one days, where the people that are gravitating towards the space are the people that are into creating their stories for themselves, right? And I'm seeing this being done in different PFP projects like Azuki or with Crypto Coven. You own this photo, essentially, and you're basically building this story for your character and you become this character that represents you. And now it's very valuable to you, right? And so I'm definitely seeing that happen with just one PFP. I can only imagine what it's like to have a whole team of NBA players that you can do this for. Yeah, I think that that's the key point here, right? Is I think somewhere along the way, NFTs became branded as JPEGs, just like pictures effectively, right? It was important for you to like get in early to make money. But like the true nuance of Web3 is what Web3 is for is it's for like enabling and rewarding people who create things, right? And so I see us as like, okay, we want to create a platform where this can serve as a jumping point for you to create things and be a part of an ecosystem and sort of reap the rewards of have you contributed versus just being there. And then you also talked about how Zed Run has created this ecosystem of people creating around it, right? Yeah. And I can totally see VBA games having this ecosystem with different tools on top of it and allowing people to create these really intricate stories around your ecosystem too. Yeah. When you bring up Crypto Coven, I think it's actually interesting is they did a lot of GPT-3 generated storylines. And I actually bought my witch because I resonated with their GPT-3 generated storyline. There was a line that she stands over a grave of ideas. And I was like, oh, wait, I feel like I've gone through that experience. (laughs) like a million ideas. She's calling to me now. Like I should just purchase this thing, right? It's pretty crazy how like one sentence as part of like an generated story like spoke to me so much. With our product as well, like that's the same thing because people buy crypto covens because they're the same personality type as they are or they have the same like, star sign. I think for a lot of basketball fans, for example, the player type that they are, whether they're an underdog or somebody who's like a rising star or somebody who's like a 3 and D person, I'd be very attached to like the Shane Maddie type of personality. Personality types, but just reframed in a different way. 
Yeah, and it's almost like if you kind of take it out of the basketball context, CryptoCoven's done a great job in creating this lore, but they really pulled inspiration from Dungeons & Dragons, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the stats and a lot of the storylines are inspiration from Dungeons & Dragons. And ultimately what VBA is, is you have an RPG game with five players and you're going out to battle, right? Each with very different attributes and very different skill sets as a team and they're being out to battle. Yeah, just in the context of basketball. Yes, exactly. Like, that's definitely one way to put it. It's an RPG game where like, it's a manager RPG game. Both yourself, Charles, and your co-founder, John, didn't come from gaming before. Making that leap as a user, as a player, into actual game design, what were some of the things that you guys did to understand the things that you had to be aware of? Because I think there's obviously a lot of people excited about Web3 and excited about the possibilities. Right. And this like intersection of being a sports fan, having played video games, and then also now enabled by blockchain potentially and having an NFT element. So what were the steps that you guys took in trying to figure out what was core to VBA games and your learning process for perhaps someone that's looking to do maybe the same thing and take that leap of faith? Yeah, definitely. There's some differences between making a game versus making a consumer product, but there are also a lot of similarities. While I say that like John and I have never worked directly in the game industry, a lot of our origins with programming, like ourselves, has come from like, playing games. John's been making games since he was 12 years old. He started making PowerPoint games at school because he wasn't allowed to play games at school, but PowerPoint was one way in which he could create games for his friends, right, in middle school. And for me, I learned to code through Neopets, actually. And I'm sure a lot of people actually tell the story. Is I would soup up my Neopet store. That was my first coding experience, was like trying to add music and backgrounds and different things to that place. We've been programming within games for the longest time. The learning curve hasn't been that steep, but I would definitely say that there's been a lot of learnings. And I think we're lucky in that we have a lot of backers from really, really well-known game companies like Riot Games, 100 Thieves, Niantic, who have been sort of giving us guidance on like, okay, these are the differences between like building a game and building a consumer product. So for example, two things that are really different are you add in two new stakeholders, right? You add in art, which is really, really important. That's not something that you typically have in the consumer product team. And then two is you add in this new game design role where somebody is responsible for thinking about all the different systems that exist and projecting out what happens in the economics of the system, like today versus tomorrow versus the future. But at the end of the day, like, if you've basically like, tried to get people to work together on building something, a lot of those skills from being like a product manager are transferable in that you're trying to drive alignment, you're trying to drive people around a joint vision and goal, and you just try to make sure that everybody's working lockstep towards that objective. So it was really cool because you have investors that are basically the best of the best, both from the gaming side and from the NBA side. Can you talk a little bit about the excitement that your angel investors have invested in the game and what that feedback was like? Yeah, we're obviously very early, right? And so I think at that point, most investors are investing for two reasons. One is they just believe in the people building the thing because that's what you really mostly have to go off of and seed. And then two basically is just bullish in the market direction, which is people think that there's a huge opportunity within like sports and Web3 as obvious by Dapper Labs, so rare types of projects, but they believe there's even more opportunity in different angles as why they invest in us as a company. I think the thing that people got the most excited about was this grand experiment that everybody's sort of going through in Web3, which is what happens when you give IP to people to create and what happens in that world in that future. And so that's something that a lot of people thought was unique and special about what we were doing compared to existing games. And so it's something that we really want to make sure that we invested and make sure our community is aligned with us on. It's super exciting to me because there's so many core insights that you are going to be able to get that nobody else is going to be able to get because of your investors. Whether it's making the, the game fun to play, but then also NBA insights that you could only get that other people can't get. 
it's just so interesting to me that you'll be able to have this intellectual library of people to tap into. Yeah, what's been cool actually is, I mean, I told you like I idolize GM. Like my dream growing up actually was to own the Timberwolves. I don't know if I told you guys that. My dream was to own the Timberwolves. I remember 2009 when Steph Curry was available in the draft and we picked Rookie Rubio and Johnny Flynn back to back before Steph Curry was drafted. And I remember like, well, if I was a GM of this team, what would I do? Like if I was the other Timberwolves, like these things would be run so much differently, right? And now I've met a lot of people in front offices and I'm starting to learn, oh, this is like really, really hard and complicated, this process, because it's so hard to tell. I can tell you two years after the fact that like Steph Curry was obviously the right pick here, but in the moment, you really don't know. <laughs> I'm sure we've all had these endless discussions with friends over beer, like late into the night or online constantly getting so heated about the moves that your team makes. And you're just like, dude, if I was GM, I would never have done that, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's really exciting as you actually get in touch and learn from these people that actually are in these positions, the inner workings and the nuances of it. So that's actually super exciting. Yeah, I mean, I would love to bring somebody in one day for the community to listen to and just because I'm sure that there would be like really rich discussion around that. Given you've raised around and... It's obvious, like we're all excited about it. And I think you've got your investors and folks excited about the project. What roles are you looking to hire or that just need to be addressed that you've seen in Web3 that are not common to Web2 startups? I ask because I'm familiar with Web2 startups. I can be like, okay, we need to hire marketing now. We need to hire another PM. We need to hire QA, et cetera, right? Versus, but Web3 is different. So are there any new roles that you are trying to hire for right now? To fulfill in Web3? I think the newest role that I think has never existed before is this community manager role, basically, which is somebody's full-time job now is to figure out how can I activate and engage and create relationships between people in the community, right? I have somebody whose full-time job now is to figure out how do I get somebody to send their first message in Discord? How do I get somebody to have their first conversation in Discord? How do I have somebody make their first friend in Discord? And how do we measure all these things, right? If you just view Discord as the extension of the product. Now we have basically this community manager function, which is you almost want to have a PM skill set figuring out how do I make this community as a product successful for the overall ecosystem. Because you no longer have just marketing and your single product. Now you have marketing, you have Discord and your product, and you need to make sure that you find the right ties and connections between all of them working together. Yeah, it's a blessing and a curse. Yes, yeah. Because if you just look at a lot of these early NFT communities, right, their only product is their Discord. That's all they have. And they're successful because they've done a great job creating these relationships between the ecosystem that they have. One of the first talks I heard from you was a talk that was hosted by Krauthaus. And for the audience that doesn't know, Krauthaus is a DAO that raised a bunch of money that is trying to buy a NBA basketball team. And that's their vision. And the way that they introduced you was super interesting and it blew my mind. And they were saying that they're hoping that VBA can eventually be a way for them to spot GM talent so that Krauthaus can use your GMs to run their basketball team. Yeah. What's your relationship with Krauthaus and how did you guys build that relationship? So I met them in November, which was what, three months ago, three and a half months ago, four months ago now. At that time, it was basically myself and John, and we were just starting to figure out what we wanted to build. And I think what was interesting was that we were both interested in the same user and problem and that there's millions of people out there who've dreamed about being a GM of a basketball team. And the angle that they were taking a solving this problem was, well, let's just buy a team, get a bunch of people to serve as GM by committee. And our approach was, well, this metaverse thing is happening, whatever you define metaverse as, right? And why don't we create an ecosystem where people can become the GM of their team in the metaverse? And so our 
product works very well for them in the sense that if you want to have a team, well, now Krauthaus can go out and buy a team of players that's just in their wallet. And then they can experiment on all the DAO governance they want internally in their house, right? Say, okay, you know what token, what voting mechanism works for us? How do we want to make player personnel decisions within what is like a lightweight version of what is like the real MBA? So they're using you as a simulation, like a trial to actually, before they actually buy a team. They could, yeah. In theory, yes. Yeah. But it's interesting, right? Because it's not just the simulation, it's actually quantifying a lot of soft skills previously. Right. So you talk about making a GM decision. I think a lot of us have worked in organizations now, right? The politics behind it, this one call, it may not just be your team. It might literally be like your job, right? But with this, you can actually simulate it, right? Because it's like, what is the optimal governance that might remove politics, right? Or different quantified mechanisms to actually make decisions. So it's pretty interesting. There's also politics within the ecosystem itself, right? Maybe I'm not in Krauthaus style and you guys want to make a trade for my star player because maybe... I have too many big men and you're looking for like a big guy, right? Now it's like, okay, how do I negotiate this deal at the same time in a way that doesn't, I don't know, like skew the fairness of the league or whatever outcome that you want to drive as a team? Yeah. So let's just say Crosshouse, for example, they are a player. Let's say they've raised millions of dollars. And so they have this wallet with millions of dollars in it. In the NBA, there's a salary cap, right? And so teams can't spend over a certain amount of dollars and that makes it a little bit fair. How do you make it so that it's fair with VBA if people can just buy players and they have unlimited cash. Yeah. So I'll give a non-answer to this because we're still working on the answer to this, but I'll say two models that I think could work, right? One is that DFS has a proven system almost of quantifying like an algorithmic salary cap in that DFS is fair because on a given game, you could only have a certain number of money to spend, right? And they basically algorithmically decide how much each player costs. And there you've created a salary cap that way. Another way of doing it is basically like you see a lot of these games where it's like, you know, you have a certain number of points to allocate. And you can either allocate these points across two stars and the rest of them being average, or you put a team of like mid-tier players together and you say like legendary cards are worth five points, underdog cards are worth one point, and then you as a GM have like 15 points to allocate across your five players. So there's a couple of different models here. I, I will assure people who are playing the game that I think we're pretty adamantly against pay to win. And we want to make sure that there's like a multivariable optimization problem for people where they not only have to find the best five players, but do it within a certain set of constraints where like skill is involved and not just luck or money. By the way, I mean, the crazy thing about this is you might actually end up on like the standard salary cap model, et cetera, et cetera, right? Or you iterate more quickly and you land on a better solution that you could then be like, hey, (laughs) trust me, literally, this is a better model. Anyways, I just think that's profound. But I do have a follow-up question, which is that, so we've been asking you about different topics, for lack of better words, all related to the game. And I think you've thought about most of them. So as a PM, how do you actually map and prioritize these issues for the game? An example of someone trying to buy in or just purchase their way into a winning team, right? Because I don't know, maybe the answer will become obvious later to me, but this feels very different from the standard PM problem that I've seen. So are you mapping it in a different way and then prioritizing or... Is it pretty standard PM stuff and I just can't see the loop that you already see? Well, consumer PM is interesting compared to B2B PM, right? Like I think B2B is like you have a clear user set of problems and you prioritize based on what they want. Consumers are fickle in that like they don't really know what they want. And so it's a lot of just feel. And I think this is where the advantage of the majority of the team are people who would play this games themselves. And if that's the case, then you sort of have that automatic intuition that's like, okay, like I know I would play this game. So what features do I want next? as the most reasonable thing. 
The second thing about this, what I think is actually fascinating is, is I was a PM on Facebook Integrity for a while. And for those who don't know what like, Facebook Integrity is, basically it's, your job is to stop all the bad guys from getting on the platform. And what's interesting about that job in games is game theory, effectively, right? If I do this, people who are trying to game the system are going to do this. And so now if you start thinking like second or third order thinking, well, it's okay, well, if there's no salary cap, well, people are sort of gamified in this way. And so we know to prioritize, okay, this is the next abuse vector. And it's almost like you just spread out like a set of investments across preventing abuse and creating good user experiences that you as a person would want. What is the best resource for me to learn about how an integrity PM thinks about integrity? <laughs> because... I could take this podcast episode down a one-hour rat hole asking you nonstop questions about this. So instead, I will say, what articles should I go read? I'm just very interested in that topic. I don't know any off the top of my head. I learned because I was just lucky to be like mentored by people who had done it for a really long time. The word that was commonly used was adversarial thinking. And that for Integrity PMs, there was an entire interview loop, I believe, around like adversarial thinking, where they would ask you questions more around like, how would you protect against? like XYZ thing and project out what other sort of abuse vectors there might be. So going back to the players, I know you call them cards, right? And I, I'm taking a look at the actual art for the NFT and they look yeah. like basketball cards. Could you talk a little bit about what the inspiration of these art is? Yeah, the art itself comes from two things, right? One is we really wanted something that was fit for avatars because we really believed in this, like, you know, you can create an avatar with this IP, a la like your own Twitter, Instagram, TikTok account for these characters, right? That's where like the sort of avatar PFP vibe comes from. The card point was just sports cards have just always been a component of the game. Like people have been collecting them for the longest time. And if you think of NFTs of this hybrid between digital collectible and in-game utility asset, we wanted to make sure that we had things that would appeal to both. And the card was one of those things where it's like, at least it has collectability to it. And then the utility we had as the metadata beneath the card itself. Given that you're a Minnesota fan, how happy are you with the current situation and the players <laughs> on the team right now? Towns dropped 60 points last I saw night. That, I yeah. think. Things are looking good. I've been trash talking a lot in our Discord server about how the Wolves are better than the Lakers this year. Because there's a lot of Lakers fans out there. The Wolves are high ranked and we'll see how things go. I like the Wolves now. Yeah. I'm almost embarrassed to say I am born and raised in LA. So who do you think is going to win the championship this year? Well, it's who do I think is going to win? This feels like one of the more competitive seasons in a For long sure. time where I could list any number of teams from the West and the East in the running. I would love to see the Suns get it this year. I was going to ask, how much faith do you have that's going to happen, though? They're one Chris Paul injury away from... Well, he's already injured. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I feel like Chris Paul's one of those guys where it's like, you, you want him to win because he's just been like so good for so long. But in the playoffs, every single year something happens. Like when he was in Houston, he got hurt, and then they lost the Warriors. Last season, I think he was still healthy, but he like, hurt his thumb. I don't know if you've heard that interview with him and JJ Redick, but like he couldn't shoot in some of the games against the Lakers. They just like didn't know if he could shoot or not, so they were still guarding him. <laughs> but he couldn't raise his shoulder, and he was still playing those games. But he was injured throughout the playoffs last season as well. Well, according to AD, if he wasn't injured, we definitely would have beat the Suns last year. But having AD yeah. on the court is, is just a struggle. So Somebody was talking about AD being one of those guys where it's like, well, you want him to play, but also you're nervous every single time he plays, he's going to get hurt <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, no, for sure. He's, he's yeah. like a glass man. It's just like hard to keep yeah. him on the court. You definitely need to build that character into your game. But <laughs> <laughs> glass man, everyone's just like, oh my God, how is this player going to go? <laughs> we don't have injuries yet, but that's definitely something I'm interested in. The volatility, right? There's a value for like the durable guy who's reliable. This is like a tangent, but I remember like Greg Oden was in the league. I would play the CF simulator mode with injuries off 
Greg Oden would turn into a monster. 2010, every single game, never get hurt. <laughs> it's like the, you play the what if scenarios, which I think people really like as well. I've watched YouTube series of people doing like what ifs of the NBA, where it's like, what if LeBron stayed on the Cavs and they just simulate seasons and then this guy just talks over it and just tells a story. What if Derrick Rose never gets injured? Simulates all the seasons there's, with injuries. Yeah, up. there's it's a, so a lot of great YouTube content out there. Even basketball analytics from fans, breakdowns. There's like the huge community around this. So I think if somehow you can leverage that or build that into VBA in the future, like we've been talking about, I think that'd be amazing. Yeah, that's definitely the North Star for the community perspective is get people creating all the side content around it. Because I would argue that the NBA product is not necessarily just the games itself, but it's the personalities behind all the players, all the talk shows and all the Twitter beefs and things like that, that sort of go around the league itself. How many GMs can play in season zero? Uh, 14,000 divided by five, whatever that is. Effectively, I think people will have more than five players. 2,800 effectively. If I wanted to be a GM for season zero, when does it start and what do I need to do? Yeah, so Mint is on March 30th and that's when we'll basically be relieving the, excuse me, the player packs. And then afterwards, you'll get one player a week until May 15th or either May 16th or May 23rd, in which case season zero will begin at that point. And so you can either get players by minting a pack or just picking up players on the secondary market. Where do you go to mint a pack? So we'll be minting with Magic Eden on the 30th. We'll do like a mint list group first or whitelist group first. And then the packs that go unsold will go public afterwards. Cool. This was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Charles. Yeah, this was fun, Matt. Thank you. Thanks. See ya. It was awesome. Thanks. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, wld.show. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you.